This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Pediatric Leadership Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Mark Gorlick, President and CEO of Children's of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Dr. Gorlick, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity. Before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. My entire career has been in children's health care. It's not necessarily been a linear path, but um, you know, I started out really in the traditional academic pediatric emergency medicine space, doing clinical care, research, and teaching. And then about 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to take on an expanded leadership role, administrative role um, in our health system and uh, medical school when I was in Wisconsin. And that kind of led me down the path of, of more and more um, leadership responsibilities on the, on the health system side. And then four years ago, after 17 years at uh, Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin, I came here to Children's Minnesota, initially as president and chief operating officer, and then after, uh, that was in early 2017, and December of that year became uh, CEO. And, you know, I, I say it hasn't been a linear path, but there's been an underlying theme, which is I've always been looking for ways to have a greater impact. I think, you know, taking care of patients one-on-one in the emergency department is richly rewarding, and it's a great it's an intense way to have a relationship with a family, um, but I, I affect patients and families one at a time. Uh, by being able to do research that might actually lead to newer and better ways of doing things, I can impact not only the patients I care for, but maybe the patients others care for in the emergency department. And here, you know, as a CEO of a health system, if we can get the system of care right, I can, I can have an impact on all of the hundreds of thousands of children that we see each year. So it's been a really gratifying uh, pathway for me. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. And it really seems like you just continue to build your influence and ability to affect patients. And I'm wondering, you know, especially considering you've spent your career in children's health care, what really inspires you to treat this particular population? Yeah, you know, I've always had an affinity for it. Uh, when I was in medical school, I liked everything I did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, when I, when I had to my pediatric rotation, it was just such a, um, first of all, I love the resiliency of kids, um, both their physical resiliency, the way they get better easily when they, you know, often get better easily when they're, when they're sick or injured, um, but their, their emotional and psychological resiliency. And, uh, you know, the, the, absolute sense of optimism that, that kids bring is just a joy. And, and then being able to really treat not only the child, but the whole family um, is, uh, is another rewarding aspect of it. Got it. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And I'm wondering first, how are you advancing health equity now at Children's Minnesota? Yeah. So um, first I should just tell you a tiny bit about Children's Minnesota. We're an independent, freestanding children's health system. Uh, we're located here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. We have two hospital campuses, one in Minneapolis, one in St. Paul. Um, but we serve kids from throughout not only Minnesota, but really a five-state region. And, you know, for us here in Minnesota, health equity has been a particular imperative. First of all, while health disparities are a national issue, we have some of the largest health disparities uh, in measures of health and well-being, uh, including for kids, uh, of any state in the country. And so that 
we have particular attention in this community to the issue of health disparities. In addition, uh, although that's been something that's been on our minds for some time, uh, of course, in, last year, uh, the killing of George Floyd happened literally 12 blocks from our Minneapolis hospital. And so uh, the national spotlight was really turned on this community and, and the inequities that we have here. And so again, while it is a national issue, we feel a particular urgency. And really this goes back long before uh, George Floyd's uh, murder. And, and we've been working on this. I've made this a priority really since I became CEO. In 2017, our community health needs assessment that we did called out of the five top issues affecting children's health in this community, what we were told by the community was two of those five were health disparities and systemic racism. And so that was kind of a wake-up call for us. And we really started our journey towards greater health equity in a meaningful way on the heels of that. As I said, right, right when I took over as CEO at the end of 2017. So there are a number of things I could call out and, you know, that we've done. The first is, one of the first things I did was to join what was called the CEO Action Pledge on Diversity and Inclusion. This is a national collaborative of companies, for-profit, non-profit, all different sectors, that started in mid-2017. It started with some of the large financial firms in New York, PwC being the kind of ringleader, when I signed on to the pledge in the beginning of 2018, I think we were one of about 150 organizations and really very few health systems. I think there was only maybe one other. Now I'm happy to say that it's up to about 6,000 companies across the country from all sectors, including many in healthcare. And the pledge that we took was really four things. The first was to make our organizations places where we would promote and have uh, honest, difficult conversations around issues of, of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The second was to uh, raise awareness of and provide training around implicit bias for our folks. The third was to have a strategy around equity and inclusion and to share that strategy with our boards. And the fourth was to share with each other, share best practices and share what isn't working so that we could all learn from each other how all of the participants in this collaborative could, could do a better job. So. Participation in that has been great, and for any of your listeners who are not aware of it, I would urge you to just Google CEO Action. Um, doesn't cost anything. It's easy, but it's been richly rewarding and helpful for us. I also, around the same time, created a new position in our organization, a Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. And part of that is um, we had some good work going on in different parts of our organization, but what we needed was to weave them all together. These issues are all interconnected. We have health disparities, uh, the patients that we see, we have disparities in their outcomes. We know from research that a more diverse workforce is associated with fewer disparities and better outcomes for underrepresented groups. We also know that we need to have not only make efforts at recruiting more diverse workforce, but we need to have the kind of inclusive environment that will allow us to retain the top talent that we attract. And, and so all these things weave in together. And so the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer, that is a role that reports directly to me as CEO, and he leads a team that is tasked with working with many other parts of the organization, human resources, supply chain, advocacy, quality department, 
to inform the efforts that they're making around health equity and diversity and inclusion, and to make sure that those considerations are woven through all the different things that we do. And so that's been an important leadership role, and, and the team he leads has been very valuable in helping us to, to drive some of those things. We've obviously had to be take some steps to be intentional in, in our hiring and, and recruitment practices, and so we've made some good strides in increasing the diversity of our workforce, including in our, among our leadership and our boards, our governance board and our foundation board, um, and really working now to take steps to create a more inclusive environment so that we can, uh, uh, we still have disparities in turnover for our employees of color versus uh, others, and so we need to work on that so we can um, nail down that retention. We've made efforts to increase our supplier diversity um, so that we as an organization are helping to build the community that we are in so that we can help reduce disparities because we know that disparities in out health outcomes are partly a result of what we do here within our walls of our health system and partly a result of what happens in the community, and we have a role to play in both. And then on the health equity side, I think we've really focused on the fact that equity is one of the core domains of quality. And so our quality program now has a very focused effort on health equity. We have, we've developed a health equity index and a health equity dashboard that is part of our quality reporting. So we share that with our board quality committee every month and with our boards of directors every meeting. Um, and, and it's been difficult, right? Being transparent about where we're not doing a great job of taking care of all children uh, is uh, been eye-opening and developing strategies to help address and reduce those disparities. And so that's, um, that's just a summary at a high level of, of some of the many efforts that we're doing to try to address health disparities, health equity, and increase the diversity and inclusion of our organization. That is such an amazing effort by you, uh, Dr. Gorlick, and really great to hear that the organization has been pursuing some of the diversity and equity, as well as health equity initiatives since you began the role, obviously accelerating it now and really seeing um, those projects as essential to your development in the organization and the community as well. I'm wondering, especially, you know, coming from um, this angle of trying to promote a, a more diverse workforce, how do you see your teams evolving in the next year? So, um, you know, when I think about my team, uh, so my, my direct reports, the, the executive leadership team, it's a relatively new team. We've had some turnover, um, uh, but we've been able to recruit some great people. It is a more diverse team. So we are learning together. Uh, we are learning how to work together as a team, and we're also learning how to not only embrace our diversity, but to leverage that diversity. Um, we have a, we've been engaging with an outside organization to do some work on our intercultural competence, and we've done both individual and, and team coaching for not only the executive leadership team, but the next level down, we call the strategic leadership team. Both of those teams are now um, uh, about 60% women and about 30% people of color. So I'm very proud of the progress we've made there, but we are, um, that is an evolution for us. And, and now we need to uh, work on taking what we have learned and spread that out throughout the rest of the organization. The other thing is, you know, COVID had a huge impact on, on us as an industry, us as an organization. And 
you know, some of the lessons that we have learned from COVID, we're now applying to our leadership team and helping us evolve. We've recognized the importance of adaptability. You know, the, the, the number of new things that we had to do over the last 18 months, the number of things we had to respond to, the ability to pivot quickly, um, to become more um, nimble in the face of rapid change, that is something that, you know, even outside of the worst of a pandemic is a trait that we will need to have as a leadership team going forward. So uh, increasing our adaptability, our ability to make decisions quickly. Um, resiliency, right? As a, that's a word that surfaced a lot during the pandemic. We've recognized the importance of resiliency, the importance of courageous leadership in the face of, of uncertainty. Um, the uncertainty of COVID itself was high. The uncertainty of the environment coming out of COVID is no less high. And so I see our team evolving to be a more resilient, more adaptable, and more courageous leadership team. Absolutely. I, I think that's, you know, really fascinating to think about, uh, you know, in terms of coming out of the pandemic and really seeing where the team has evolved. And, you know, I, I really like that point that it's as uncertain as, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, not knowing what's coming around the corner next, you know, that still continues um, as we get into the next several months here. I'm wondering, you know, considering your leadership, you've talked a lot here about resiliency and adaptability and being able to build strong teams. What do you do differently that makes you successful at, you know, building these teams and making sure that they're resilient going forward? You know, I think a lot about my clinical background as a pediatric emergency medicine physician. And one of the, you know, there are a couple of characteristics of the practice of pediatric emergency medicine that I, I think make for um, people with that background as effective leaders. One is the, the while we've increasingly recognized that medicine is a team sport, that has always been really, really obvious in the setting of the emergency department. Um, and, you know, the ability to, to, to build teams and work with teams um, is, is great. And one factor about that is you know, we're all there in the same place at the same time. So this, the importance of visibility and, and, and approachability as a leader um, is something that I learned from my time practicing pediatric emergency medicine. And so I've adapted that now, and I, I make sure as a leader that I am visible and approachable. And so I round regularly throughout our clinical areas. Um, I have regular open office hours. Anybody in the organization who wants to can drop by for any reason. You know, they, they might have a concern to share. They might have a suggestion to make. They might just want to introduce themselves, talk to me about their program or about their job. Um, but it's a great way to help build that team because as an organization, Children's Minnesota, the 5,000-plus employees we have, we are a team of teams. And the more we, our leaders can be visible and approachable, that, that facilitates that. The other thing about pediatric emergency medicine folks is, and I alluded to this before, you get comfortable with making critical decisions when you don't necessarily have all the information you'd like to have. That's just the nature of what we do. And, you know, there's time pressures. There's, you know, we don't always have the availability of resources to get prior information or do tests in, in that acute setting. When that happens, when you're making decisions without all the information you want, you're not always going to get it right. And we probably because of the constraints we have the, on, on the information we have, 
as emergency pro providers, we're likely to be wrong a little bit more often than our colleagues in other specialties. And that causes you to develop a certain comfort with failing. Not that we like to fail, but you just get used to it. You develop a humility around it. You, you um, hope you get it right. You learn when you don't. And that ability to, to take risks is important when you're making decisions, leadership decisions, during these very uncertain times. And so I think that's another characteristic that I've been able to carry over into this role that I think has been helpful for particularly during this, you know, the turmoil that we've had of the pandemic and coming out of it. Dr. Golick, thank you for going through that with us. I think that's really insightful and, you know, great to consider those comps between, you know, being um, in emergency medicine and then coming through and being a, a, an executive of the health system as well. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three trends in healthcare that you're following most closely today? Sure. You know, one uh, feeds onto what we've already talked about, and that is, you know, the, the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, the community we serve is a very diverse community. Um, they're very savvy about which organizations are truly trying to advance health equity, really making efforts in diversity and inclusion, and which ones are just being performative. So we, we need to stay focused on that. And that's, I think, going to be a trend throughout the industry is really, and we've already seen this, many organizations are doing a lot of great work trying to advance health equity. The second, I think, is the move towards value. And you know, that's a word that's, it can take on so many different meanings in, in so many different contexts. But we look, the move towards value-based payments has been a little bit more accelerated on the coasts, maybe than in the center of the country, maybe more in adult care than in pediatrics, but it is coming and we need to learn how to deliver high-value care. And, and to me, part of that trend is, is recognizing that value, although we often define it this way, we often say, well, it's it's quality over cost. And the problem I have with that formulation is it holds out that there's a trade-off somehow. And particularly for those of us in highly specialized care, we often try to game that system by saying, well, we're delivering value because we're delivering high quality. The fact is, if you look at the definition of quality, there are six domains of quality. Four of them are what we have often put under the rubric of, quote, quality, unquote. And that is effectiveness or outcomes safety, patient-centeredness or experience, and equity. But the other two domains that were defined by the Institute of Medicine back in the 90s are timeliness and efficiency. And so honestly, if we want to say we're delivering high-quality care, it needs to be effective and safe and patient-centered and equitable, but it also needs to be timely and it also needs to be efficient. And so I don't see value as a trade-off between quality and cost. I see value as the summation across all domains of quality. That's where we're going as an organization because the industry is demanding of us to deliver high-value care, and, and we're committed to doing that. So the move towards value is a second. And then the third is tied in with that, and that is you know, increasing consumerism. And again, I think pediatrics might be a little bit slower to, to, to be facing this than, than on the adult side, but our patients and families are expecting more of us, and, and, and they have options, and they expect us to to not only deliver high-value care, but to demonstrate it, to engage with them differently, whether it's through digital means or other uh, more, frankly, consumer-friendly ways of, of engaging, not just in the clinical care, but all the stuff that surrounds the clinical care. And, if, and we need to 
catch up to that um, because patients, for a long time, those of us in, in specialty care have taken for granted that we get patients through referrals. Well, patients and families are are asking questions about those referrals, and we need to be able to, to meet their expectations if we hope to be able to attract them and to provide the care that we can, great, can provide. So value, consumerism, and equity are the three trends that I'm most focused on at the moment. Dr. Gorlick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.